Welcome to Peak True Crime, a podcast telling of dark tales and dastardly deeds in Derbyshire and the Peak District. Glossop, 2022. Just before half past two, on the afternoon of May the 14th, 2022, 18-year-old Peyton Gendron stood in the car park of Top Supermarket on Jefferson Avenue in Buffalo, upstate New York. 187 days later, just before midnight on the 17th of November 2022, 22-year-old Anderson Lee Eldridge stood in the car park at Q Club in Colorado Springs. The top supermarket in Buffalo was in a predominantly black area of the city. Club Q was in a gay venue and on the Thursday night in question was hosting a birthday party for a drag queen. At both locations, separated by just six months, both men activated body-worn cameras and began streaming to their followers online. In Buffalo, 18-year-old Peyton Gendron opened his stream with the words, Go for it. Within half an hour of each assailant opening a window through which the world was invited to view their atrocities, ten shoppers and shop workers at Top Supermarket were dead. In Colorado Springs, five patrons of Club Q were murdered and almost 50 injured. Though the two young men had never met, there being no evidence that they had ever even communicated, they both spent endless hours and days prowl in the darkest corners of the internet. On private message boards and in encrypted chat rooms, along with their fellow travellers, they discuss and share far-right rhetoric. Conspiracies such as the Great Replacement, the New World Order and anti-Semitic cabals became self-perpetuating rant to threat and dark fantasy. And then there were the videos. Long, rambling polemics on the marginalisation of the white Christian culture and the threat to their nationalistic ideals had sit beside slickly edited tributes to any hateful racist terrorist you can imagine. Some of the videos were better than others, better scripted, better produced. One such creator that they both enjoyed operated from behind the anonymous username BotCanon. Whether he posted videos calling for an armed uprising or celebrating white supremacist murders, including the Norwegian Anders Breivik, who killed 77 people, or Brenton Tarrant, who killed 51 people outside two mosques in New Zealand, Buchanan's videos were attracting a huge views on the free speech, world truth video sharing platform. Whoever Buchanan was, he clearly had an artistic eye to match his warped view of humanity. His scripts and visuals were as sharp as they were poisonous. And in an online community that isn't renowned for its intellectual or aesthetic cohesiveness, he couldn't only catch his audience's attention, but he had the ability to hold and shape it. Buchanan, though, for all his influence, for all his following, wasn't simply some racist professional filmmaker. He wasn't even a hugely funded psyop by a foreign power who sought to sow disharmony in the Western democracies. Buchanan was a teenage boy who lived with his granddad 
in a small flat in Glossop in Derbyshire. From his bedroom, though, he inspired the killings of at least 15 people. Born in London, Daniel Harris moved to Ramsgate on the Kent coast with his mother, Anita, when he was just a toddler. The pair lived with his maternal granddad, a retired electronics engineer, and before long he started school, age five, at Bromstone Primary School in Broadstairs, a few miles along the coast from home. It was, and still is, a community primary school with just under 500 children and in the first year there, it seemed Daniel was settling in well. At the age of seven, though, issues started to occur in class which troubled his teachers. Shy and introvert, Daniel was prone to disruptive and inappropriate behaviour. On many occasions, he seemed to either fail to understand or enjoyed breaching the normal social boundaries of other children, obsessively uninvitedly touching other classmates' hair. As this behaviour increased in frequency and intensity, it was decided by the school that he should be suspended for a few days, while decisions were made as how his behaviour could be best managed in the future. Unfortunately for the seven-year-old Daniel, though, this was the point when his relationship with formal education would come to an end. There are conflicting reports of what exact sequence of events were, with his grandfather and mother stating that he was blacklisted from every primary school in the county. Kent County Council, however, offer a different perspective, claiming that within 24 hours of his suspension, Daniel was withdrawn from mainstream education by his mother, with the intention being that he'd be homeschooled. With his mother, Anita, working full-time, the responsibility for educating young Daniel fell to his grandfather, John. This was September 2011, and it wasn't long before seven-year-old Daniel had advanced so far that his elderly grandfather wasn't able to keep up. From 2011 to 2018, Kent County Council made numerous attempts to evaluate the well-being of the Harris family and the suitability of Daniel's education. At each turn, due to the total collapse in trust between the family and the local authority, these interventions failed in any meaningful way, and by the age of 11, the largely self-taught Harris had already been exposed to white supremacist content on the internet. His social isolation continued. Rarely leaving the house, what was later suggested as undiagnosed autism went unaddressed with Daniel refusing to engage with medical and educational professionals. On the rare occasion he did venture outside, he seemed to encounter trouble at every turn, returning home almost as soon as he'd left, retreating back into the solace of his bedroom and the internet. When he was 14, in 2018, on one of the rare journeys outside of the home, Daniel was involved in an incident with a group of other teenagers, 
which resulted in his arrest for common assault. It was suggested that the attack was a consequence of an attempted robbery of a mobile phone. However, his family have a different perspective. They say that he was filmed by a group of four teenagers and as he attempted to take the phone off them and delete the footage, he was forced to defend himself from their aggression. Whatever the reality of the situation, with a mind to giving Daniel a fresh start, his mother and grandfather made the 250-mile trip north to Glossop and moved to the small market town on the westerly edge of the Peak District, just 15 miles from Manchester. Glossop was Daniel's choice. His mum, Anita, said that after the incident involving the mobile phone, he stayed indoors for a solid six months, rarely venturing outside his room. The rural location was something that attracted him to the sleepy little town, while Anita hoped that the close proximity to Manchester had given him opportunity to visit galleries and museums. He would continue to be home educated. Attempts were made to enrol him at school, but they proved unsuccessful. Equally unsuccessful were efforts to fit in and make friends. His social awkwardness, struggling to start or maintain a conversation, an inability to make eye contact with strangers, a teenage body that at six foot tall he felt he had no control over, led to reports of him being rejected by others and possibly bullied. The lack of any meaningful connection with the world drove his deeper immersion into a virtual life online. Where it was hoped his love of and ability in photography and art could be focused on the natural beauty of his idyllic rural setting, instead he became more drawn into the online culture of incels, far-right dogma and conspiracy rhetoric theory. He began by putting together short videos of Holocaust denial and Nazi propaganda and for once he found his little tribe, a community that appreciated what he did and praised him for his efforts. It was at this point, at the age of 15, that Buchanan, his pseudonym, was born. In the year up to September 2022, the latest available data, 20 people were convicted of far-right terrorism-related offences in the UK, up from 18 in 2020. Of those convicted, nine were teenagers, the most the UK has had in one year. The government's Prevent programme, a key plank of its counter-terrorism strategy, for the same period saw right-wing extremism as representing 46% of all its referrals, with 49 of all terror arrests in the year to September 22 linked to suspected right-wing terrorism. Although these figures represent a significant increase in far-right activity in recent years, it's important to recognise that this surge can be attributed in part to the authorities adopting a more proactive stance against the threat of far-right extremism. Additionally, the expansion of terror-related legislation has significantly broadened the range of activities categorised as terrorist in nature. 
For example, we can look back to 1996 and the violent neo-Nazi group Combat 18. They produced a 100-page magazine called The Black Mag. It was professionally produced and distributed through bookshops, by mail order and at meetings. Within its pages, it contained the sort of editorial content you'd expect from an organisation whose abbreviated name, C18, derives from the 18, referencing A, the first letter of the alphabet, and H, the 8th, an homage to Adolf Hitler. Features included bomb designs, the home addresses of black sportsmen such as Frank Bruno and the footballer Paul Ince, and overt calls for the targeted murder of specific individuals such as left-wing activist and actress Vanessa Redgrave. The creators of this magazine were both sentenced to just six months in prison under race relations legislation, not for their incitement to violence or worse. Even when considering the broader scope of today's offences, there's been concern from organisations such as Hope Not Hate in the increase in the number of men, particularly young men, who are becoming attracted to violent far-right extremism. Despite police and security services' efforts to successfully dismantle groups like National Action, smaller and more loosely connected networks continue to operate, both in the UK and abroad. Astonishingly, in 2020, a 15-year-old boy from Derby was convicted of setting up and running a far-right extremist group called the British Hand. Unconnected in any way to Daniel Harris, the teenager, who wasn't named for legal reasons, led a group of between 30 or 40 young British teenagers, who advocated for attacks on mosques as well as Muslim-owned businesses. Members of the group met in real life, and photographs which were shared on the encrypted messaging platform Telegram, showed some of them at an airsoft gun range in Sheffield, mirroring the training exercises of US far-right militia groups. Online, some members discussed joining the army in order to receive experience with live ammunition and get access to firearms. Although the identities of the individuals weren't known, the anti-extremism organisation Hope Not Hate were monitoring their activity online. But it wasn't until a member from Essex, 18-year-old Matthew Cunyega, was arrested that the extent of the network was entirely understood. Cunyega had attempted to buy a gun in order to kill a fellow Muslim student, whom he nicknamed the Cockroach. As the result of the tip-off, his plan came to the attention of the police. After a raid on his home, Parts for a 3D printed gun were found, along with designs for several other such weapons and instructions of how to manufacture ammunition. On his computer, they uncovered his online interactions with the British Hand Network, the size of its network and the advanced nature of its plots. One member of the group, also from Essex, was as young as 13 years old. As I said previously, Outside of maybe watching his videos, the British Hand Network had no real contact with Daniel Harris, despite their leader living in the same county. None that's known of, at least. I think what it demonstrates, though, is that in the atomised yet digitally interconnected world of online far-right extremism, geography has no bearing on influence. Music
Life in Glossop, for Daniel Harris, was little different from Rumsgate. He was still homeschooled and extremely socially isolated. His mother and grandfather tried to persuade him to undergo an assessment for autism, the hope being that with a diagnosis he could finally get the help and support he clearly needed. Daniel refused. A diagnosis would mean that he'd have to address his problems, and why would he do that? He was gaining respect and acceptance within the hate-fuel world of online extremism. In the shadows, he was somebody. Outside, in the light, he'd be nothing. His grandfather John, in an interview with the Sunday Times, spoke with some pride of his grandson's intelligence. I think it's worth giving you the whole quote. He taught himself online. He did a whole 500-page history of World War II and published it online. He had an IQ of 115 at the age of 10. There's a couple of things in this statement worth unpacking. Firstly, an IQ of 115 at the age of 10 isn't really that impressive. According to Mensa, scores between 110 and 119 are considered a high average. Granted, that's better than just average, but it's not outstanding. An IQ of 125 plus is considered to be gifted, but there are two levels above gifted. Scores of 120 and 129 are superior. 130 plus are very superior. Daniel had long moved beyond the educational level his grandfather was able to offer him, but he wasn't some child genius. He was simply average. When he did come into contact with education officials, as happened when they visited his Glossop home in 2020, they all commented on his photography, drawings and paintings. One describing him as a gifted artist, but a scholar. He was simply above average and there really is nothing remarkable about that. Secondly, the book on the history of the Second World War he wrote. At the age of 16, he did indeed write a history of the Second World War. Its title, though, gives an indication of Harrison's distorted perception of the political and historical context of the conflict and of its genocide. On the cover is a photograph of a street scene from the 40s, probably Germany, but maybe somewhere in occupied Europe. An open-top car is pulling up outside what seems like some sort of administrative building. The passenger in the back is being welcomed by uniformed German dignitaries. The passenger they're here to see is Adolf Hitler. Here to catch a glimpse of him are hundreds and hundreds of ordinary people. The streets in the photograph are lined with eight or nine deep and fluttering from buildings and hanging from windows are blood-red flags bearing a white circle within which sits the Nazi swastika. The flags with their swastikas dominate the image, dwarfing the buildings as easily as they do the throngs of people. The book's title? Germania, the history of the Third Reich. Co-opting the title from a 1st century AD history of the German people by Roman historian and politician Tacitus, Germania is, in Harris's own words, 466 pages of red pills. Red pills, in this context, 
refers to a trope often deployed in far-right and conspiracy theory rants. The choice is between a red pill and a blue pill, symbolising the decision to either embrace a potentially unsettling or life-altering truth by opting for the red pill, or maintain a contented existence within the realm of ordinary reality by selecting a blue pill. In other words, take the red pill and learn a hard truth, or take the blue pill and live in blissful ignorance. Harris's Germania, however, fails the red pill test. While it does make for uncomfortable reading, it's as bald a piece of Holocaust denial as it's possible to imagine. In it, he characterises Hitler as a genteel and caring man who's kind to children and animals alike. His arch-propagandist Goebbels is a much-misunderstood voice of truth and the state-sponsored persecution and murder of six million Jewish men, women and children by the Nazi regime a lie. A plot by the Western Alliance in order to hasten the establishment of the State of Israel. And it's long. Very long. And with almost 30 pages of references and dozen upon dozen of photographs, it's a work that represents a huge commitment to his delusional cause. It took Harry six months to write, writing every day for 14 hours a day. It's possible his grandfather never read it. It's possible that he simply admired the application of his grandson to something, anything to keep him out of trouble. Maybe. A line from the interview with the Sunday Times maybe reveals his granddad had a little more agency than he's willing to admit. Like they say on YouTube, it's a crime to be white. You should read up on it. He stops. I'm worried about slipping up. You might be the thought police. A crime to be white. A turn of phrase plucked from an imagination that might ignorantly, in response to the Black Lives Matter movement, through spittle and bile spew out the words, White Lives Matter. The killing of George Floyd, an African-American man who was murdered by a police officer in Minneapolis in May 2020, was not the first of such incidents, but for a multitude of interconnecting reasons, it launched a global re-evaluation of institutionalised racism and the systemic injustices that exist around the world. Protests and marches were held in all the major cities in America, Europe and beyond. At England football matches, players took the knee during the playing of the national anthem, only to be booed by grown men who, through spittle and bile, they spewed out that white lives matter. On Stephen Street, in Manchester's northern quarter, a graffiti mural in remembrance of George Floyd was created. By it, people laid flowers and lit candles. It was a symbol of solidarity and a hope that this would mark a turning point. Rumours, though, began circulating online. The original source unknown. That the City Council had chosen to honour George Floyd ahead of Fusilier Lee Rigby, a soldier who was hacked to death by Islamic extremists outside of his barracks in London seven years earlier. It was a lie. The city already had a permanent memorial to Lee Rigby. It formed the centrepiece of a memorial garden that mocked all fallen service men and women from the region. The rumour, though, was shared and shared and shared again on social media. 
criticism and condemnation was poured on the council and the mayor and at 7.15 on the morning of the 20th of July 2020, a dark-clothed youth, wearing a hoodie and his face covered, stood before the mural. He reached inside a plastic JD Sports shopping bag and pulled out an aerosol can. At the same moment as he popped the lid, a pedestrian crossed the street behind him. They pulled out a mobile phone and started recording. What are you doing? the passerby shouted. The can was dropped straight into the bag, the bag slung over the shoulder and the youth ran away. Trawls of local CCTV proved unsuccessful. No trace was found of the young man. Not until two days later anyway, when the same youth, in the same dark clothes, was recorded on CCTV in front of the mural at 5.30am on the 22nd of July 2020. This time there was nobody around to disturb him. Nobody to stop him. And in large black block capitals, he spread the N-word right across the chest and shoulders of the murdered George Floyd. Job done, the youth then calmly walks off in a westerly direction. Almost his entire journey through the city captured on camera. Doubling back, going east to west, back to east and west again, and then finally east, until his destination, disappearing beneath a road tunnel, never to be seen again. The disgust of locals and the broader community was unanimous. Sasha Lord, founder of the Warehouse Project, a series of huge and successful club nights that run in found spaces across the city, offered a £1,000 reward for information leading to the conviction of the perpetrator. Near blanket CCTV coverage of the city, public outrage and a significant crash reward wasn't enough to catch the youth responsible for defacing the mural. The mural was repaired, and for a while it seemed it would go down with just another unsolved crime. A disgusting act of racist vandalism, but unsolved crime nonetheless. That was until 5.23am on the 26th of February 2021, when the police received a call. A dark-clothed youth wearing a hoodie with a JD Sports shopping bag had been seen defacing the George Floyd mural in Stevenson Square. At the conclusion of the chase that followed, by car and on foot, police apprehended the youth responsible. A young man who bore a striking resemblance to the figure seen on camera spraying the N-word on the mural just seven months earlier. As the youth stood in front of the custody sergeant at Longsight Police Station, in the custody suites, just a mile southwest of the city centre, he was asked his name. The young man was nervous. He couldn't hold eye contact with anyone. He did reply though. His name was Daniel Harris. Harris pleaded guilty to two counts of racially aggravated criminal damage. In his second attack on the mural in Stevens Square, he wrote Kill Invaders across the face of George Floyd. Given an 18-month youth supervision order, he was also referred for support to the UK government's Prevent Programme, an initiative mentioned earlier on. In his sixth meeting with a former FARA activist, the purpose of which was to understand his journey into radicalisation and challenge his thinking around it, 
Harris described his drift into far-right ideology as a blip and denied ever having any interest in politics. It's worth taking a step back and understanding the timeline of what Harris was up to. He started to write his Holocaust denial book in March 2020, just as the UK was going to its first Covid lockdown. A month before its completion, he was vandalising the George Floyd Memorial in Manchester. Germania dropped online at the start of that September, and the notoriety it brought him drove more viewers to his racist content on the Worldview video platform. With the book completed, Harris moved away from revisionist history of the Holocaust to more tribute videos of violent racist terrorists. Whether he is responsible for the fiction regarding the George Floyd Memorial being at the expense of one marking the murder of Lee Rigby is unknown, but some online conversations suggest he might have been. What is clear, though, is that he became emboldened by the attention to shift his far-right activism into the real world, with his follow-up attack on the mural. In his first attack on the mural, he simply daubed it with a racial epithet, the N-word. The second time, around his words, were a call to action. Kill invaders. Peyton Gendron shot ten people dead in Buffalo live-streaming the attack via his Discord server. Before he opened fire on his first victim, 55-year-old Aaron Slater Jr., a former Buffalo police officer who was working as a security guard when he confronted Gendron, he switched on his head-mounted video camera and sent invitations to view the attack to 15 people. One of those people was Daniel Harris. The pair had communicated through the comments sections attached to Harris's videos and it's reported that just before firing the first shot, he gave a shout-out to Harris. In the manifesto left behind, he used images and passages from Harris's videos to illustrate his twisted belief system at least seven times. As well as that, he echoed thoughts and lies set out in Germania. He espoused the belief in Harris's call for total extermination of subhumans. Anderson Lee Aldrich killed five people at an LGBT nightclub in Colorado Springs. He showcased Harris' videos in the chat forum, cited Harris's work in his own twisted manifesto. Though there's no evidence they ever directly communicated, it's clear that Harris's videos played a large part in Aldrich's radicalisation. In the aftermath of the first Buffalo shooting, and then the Colorado Springs shooting, it became clear to US law enforcement that while both individuals shared similar worldviews, there was also a number of common influencers to whom they gravitated, one of which was a user called Buchanan, a.k.a. Daniel Harris. Analysing his prodigious output, under the username Buchanan, it was clear even at first glance he was possibly based in the UK. The videos made references to unique UK far-right issues, such as the murder of MP Joe Cox. The spelling used in posts was also British English. Beyond that, they knew nothing more about him.
Almost a year earlier, though, in November 2021, a UK investigation began into an unknown far-right activist whom it appeared was garnering interest both at home and abroad in fascist circles and it was assumed was based in the UK. Harris, at this time, was in the process of exiting the Prevent programme, onto which he'd been placed as a result of his conviction for defacing the George Floyd mural in Manchester. Harris convinced Prevent that his drift into far-right extremism was just a blip, that he'd never been interested in politics before, and that he was depressed and lonely, and that he'd now seen the error of his ways. The reality was that having finished Germania, he had more time and energy to devote to producing videos and promoting his fascist ideology. Something he'd been doing uninterrupted since his original arrest and subsequent conviction. Police investigating the online persona of Buchanan had no idea that the person they were tracking had just been convinced of racially motivated criminal damage. They didn't know where in the country he lived, let alone his real name. It was decided, therefore, that an officer would go undercover online and befriend Buchanan in the hope that he'd give something up that might lead to his identity. Through online conversations, some public, some private, Harris gave nothing away. It was decided, therefore, for the investigation to take a different track. In the spring of 2022, therefore, assuming the online persona Supreme Being, the officer approached Buchanan with a proposal. He wanted to commission a specific video for private use and was willing to pay. What Supreme Bean requested was a tribute to Thomas Mayer, the unemployed gardener who'd killed Labour MP Joe Cox in the weeks leading up to the Brexit referendum in 2016. For more than 17 years, the racist mayor had harboured dark fantasies about ending the life of someone he deemed a collaborator against the white race. By 2016, he'd identified the left of centre Cox as just such a collaborator particularly given her campaigning against Britain leaving the European Union. Cox was on her way to meet a constituent at a routine surgery in Bristol, West Yorkshire, when Thomas Mayer shot her twice in the head and once in the chest with a modified .22 hunting rifle, then stabbed her 15 times outside a library in a Yorkshire constituency of Batley and Spen. After a brief negotiation, a fee of £60 was agreed, and while the delivery of the finished video could be done via email, in order to collect payment and also maintain anonymity, Harris set out his demands. Supreme Being was to leave the cash on a certain date in a specific location, March 22, 2022, in a hedgerow at Woolley Services on the northbound side of the M1. Once agreed and then completed, Supreme Being sent precise instructions via Proton Mail as to where to find the cache, including images of a route from the service station entrance to the gap in the Hawthorne hedge where the cache had been left, in a white plastic bag underneath a discarded plastic sack of builder's sand. If the transaction had just been between two far-right fascists, this would have been a perfectly satisfactory way to conduct a clandestine handover a dead drop worthy of a Cold War thriller. It wasn't, though. 
the purchase who was leaving six £10 notes for Harris to collect was undertaking a counter-terrorism operation on behalf of the British government and had resources available to make the supposed mitigations Harris had put in place utterly meaningless. The technology wasn't really that sophisticated. A couple of cameras were installed to provide additional surveillance to the near-blanket coverage provided by the service station itself. A motion-sensitive camera was even camouflaged and hidden inside the hedge, which captured, in crystal-clear 4K HD, Harris's face as he collected the cash from its hiding place. I think it's safe to imagine that, given Harris had only recently been convicted of racially motivated criminal damage, they'd only recently exited the government's anti-radicalisation programme Prevent, that identifying the figure who collected £60 from underneath a bush at a service station in Yorkshire, just 50 miles across the Pennines from where his crimes took place, Harris would have been arrested within days. Unfortunately, you'd be mistaken. Police didn't raid Harris's home he shared with his grandfather until May the 16th, 2022. Two days after 18-year-old Peyton Gendron stood in the car park of Top Supermarket on Jefferson Avenue in Buffalo, upstate New York, switched on his body world cameras and began the stream into his followers online, the murder of 10 people. Two days after police discovered Dendron's manifesto of hate, which included at least seven citations to Harris's work. Two days since authorities discovered communications between Harris and Gendron on his computer. Two days since Harris had been invited by Gendron to watch him commit his atrocity. It was two days into Harris's trial for encouraging terrorism and possession of material for terrorist purposes, 22-year-old Anderson Lee Aldrich stood in the car park of Club Q in Colorado Springs, about to shoot dead in cold blood five people and injuring 50 more. Harris had never so much as touched a gun. He was an ocean away from the scenes of the crimes at the times of both killings. What he did, though, was incite and encourage and entice, both directly and indirectly, others to take up arms and pursue a violent and bloody campaign in the name of his far-right ideology. Whether he was a victim of grooming himself, we don't know. But the police believe he wasn't. And in reality, it doesn't really matter. What is certain, though, is that from a small bedroom in his grandfather's flat in Glossop, Daniel Harris emboldened fellow racists to strike against those he deemed inferior and to blame for his inadequacies. He overcame the impotence of his racist rage by inspiring others to kill, for which he was sentenced to 11 years in prison, plus three further years on licence on his release, when he will also be subject to a five-year serious crime prevention order. Handing down the sentence at Manchester Crown Court in January 2023, Judge Field Casey referred to Harris's previous offending, including the defacing of the George Floyd mural, and described his offences as calculated, deliberate and sophisticated, demonstrating a high level of intelligence and competency. He described Harris as a highly dangerous and significant risk to members of the public, adding that the attacks in the US were not only appalling, but no more than he'd intended others to do.
welcome to Glossop and it is absolutely tipping it down. Um, it's quite refreshing because it's been it's been quite warm but um, yeah it's the heavens have opened and it's just um, soaked everybody and everything and I'm stood here in um, a pair of shorts and a short sleeve shirt and flip-flops and I feel a particular idiot but yes this is Glossop it's it's actually a really pretty place it's a market town um, and given the time now is what time is it now sort of 20 past nine ish there's lots of people about I'm stood in front of the train station um, and the architecture is very very traditional but substantial Derbyshire gritstone um, there's a B&M behind me which I think might be the poshest B&M I've ever seen it's um, to people from abroad B&M is um, like a discount retailer and they sell all sorts homeware food gardening things like that but the store is supposed to be in dumped on an industrial estate or um, in what is the equivalent of an aircraft hangar has been fitted into like a, a Derbyshire gritstone but and it's it's very very pretty um, so yes I'm here at the train station and if I look round there's over to my surrounding Glossop are hills um, which you can just make out through the rain um, to the right so I've got my back to the train station now to the right is Kinder Scout which is where there was the mass trespass of Kinder Scout um, which took place in the early 30s and it was a it was a workers movement who were protesting really about the fact that the countryside around the big cities was becoming increasingly private land and where previously to escape the grime and smoke and soot of the cities workers would escape to the countryside and ramble walk and enjoy the fresh air but in the interwar years more and more of this what was effectively common ground was being fenced off by by private landowners and um, so a group of workers from Manchester descended on Kinder Scout and broke down the fences and and marched up to the top of it it's a very it's an iconic kind of act of civil disobedience and resulted some 10-15 years later directly in the foundation of the national parks in the UK and well the Peak District itself so it's quite an iconic incident and one which 
is now part of kind of northwest folklore, I guess. Some of the some of the most of Kinderscout you can see from here, but the place I'm probably going to head to next is to my left, um, and that's all the way down to Lord Street, which is where Daniel lived with his granddad and his mum. Um, the train station is probably how when Daniel went into to there's a bus deface the mural of George Floyd in Manchester how he would have got into the city but I was just looking at the timetables and things before and the earliest train from here is about six o'clock in the morning and it would sort of tally with his first attempt at graffitiing over the mural in that that took place just after seven o'clock and it's about a half hour a half hour train ride from here into Manchester his second successful attempt was a lot earlier in the day just after five o'clock in the morning but there wouldn't be any trains that would get into Manchester at that time and from what I can see there'd be no buses either so I wonder thinking about that now whether he actually got the last train into Manchester and just hung around the city in the dark waiting for the light to break and for him to be able to to do what he did and if that's the case then it it kind of speaks to a real determination to what he did a lot of foresight and planning and to spend five hours in the city on his own in the dark surrounded by all the um, local characters and colour of that part of Manchester um, I don't know it, I don't know what it says but it says something that's I don't know a certain determination and single mindedness in what he did with lots of opportunity to change his mind and but he didn't he continued and, and pursued his goal so I'm going to take the it's about a five minute walk I think down to Lord Street and Sorry, it was a van reversing. Uh, a little look and um, see see what I can see there. Let's see this way. Yeah, well, come here. Let's be quiet over here. Here you go. So, um, Doug and I have walked up up the hill to Lord Street, which is where there's a good boy. You sit there for a second. Which is where Daniel lived with his granddad, and I think for a lot of the time, his his mum spent a lot of time here. Um, it's only a few minutes from the centre of town. It is a walk uphill, though. Um, 
and as you move away from the shops it's such a pretty little town that long really you get to their family houses they're all in the same of the same similar architectural style there's they're all in the grits derbyshire gritstone with dark slated roofs and they're they have gardens which are all well maintained and there's detached houses and semi-detached houses and after you've been walking for about four or five minutes on the left hand side you come to Lord Street and this is the house where Daniel lived and one thing you notice about it is the well sorry the the bin men are doing the bins today so there's a little bit of clanking in the background there is a lot of it seems quite a middle class place I think there's been a lot of uh, incomers to the town in the last few years uh, so families from the city have, have moved out here because of the good transport connections but because it's right on the edge of the Peak District and all that has to offer and Daniel's house is slightly different to all of those substantial well-maintained family houses it's built in I think it's a flat a multi-level flat and it's built and it's like a red brick extension on the rear of one of those bigger properties um, and there's a side entrance that's off the road and then obviously stairs up to the upper levels and it just feels as though It's not, it stands out a little bit as being a little bit run down in what is a, a cute little suburb. Suburb's the wrong word because we're five minutes from the centre of town, but it's such a, it feels such a safe, comforting area. When we were down at the train station before, um, I was, well, I was recording and after I'd finished the chap comes up and tickled the dog behind the ear um, and asked me what I was up to and I said, well, I'm just uh, recording for a podcast. I mean, I guess a guy, I just, I don't have a handheld mic, it's just a small little lapel mic and he... I guess someone stood outside a train station seeming to talk to themselves about right-wing conspiracies might might look a little bit odd but he approached and asked what I was doing and I told him and he he said something interesting he said about how no one in the town really knew Daniel nobody knew him at all in fact he apparently had he did volunteer at a a uh, food bank on the other side of town but he was wasn't there for very long um, and the guy I spoke to said of how he he lived here for a long time and he'd noticed the change in the place since people had started moving in from the city or out from the city and he said that what they'd brought with them was a bit a new life to the place and that he noticed that he said the phrase brown faces but that and I spotted it as well after he'd mentioned it for a little 
market town on the edge of the Peak District. It's quite, it seems quite multicultural. And as I walked up here from the from the train station, I passed the library, and in the window, there's no shortage of clubs and societies and activities going on. And you get the sense that this community of families that have moved from the city to here have really been embraced by the town and have paid back that hospitality by joining in with things and being part of it and part of the community. Daniel spent hour upon hour upon hour in his room online and never engaged with either the community on his doorstep or the broader countryside that surrounds it and I just can't help feeling that if somehow Daniel could have been encouraged to stick with the food bank maybe and and meet some people and develop some sense of empathy for others could have somehow been wrenched out of his shell and out into the real world the sense of community the sense of place the opportunities the city had to offer and the beauty of the natural wonder of the Peak District I just feel he wouldn't have gone down the road he could he did and that's not as an apologist what he did was vile but a different boy with different opportunities might have took a different path come on fella let's go I've found this episode a challenge to write. Some previous cases I've covered have been difficult. The cruel and wicked things one person's willing and able to do to another is never something I can get used to. The problem I had is not just the growing influence of racist right-wing rhetoric, but also how an individual can find themselves being drawn deeper and deeper into such toxic despair. I'd only planned for this to be a shorter case note episode, but the more I read and investigated, the greater the need to give the case some time to be told, and I hope told well. It was written, rewritten, recorded, rewritten again and recorded again. Daniel Harris's view of the world, as well as his desire to inspire action on those beliefs in the most violent of ways I've found sickening. It's the curse of the liberal, though, to seek to understand as much as to condemn. He was clearly failed by his family and broader society. He fell victim to an ideology that peddled bile and hatred, and once under its spell, 
persuasive advocate and activist. To understand, though, is not to excuse. Within the nether world of online far-right conspiracy theory, he achieved acceptance he was unable to achieve in the real world. In his mind, though, did he realise he was sacrificing truth and humanity in exchange for notoriety? I can't help think he did, but to him, it was a price worth paying. And that has been my challenge, to try and understand that. Last night, in the US, the UK Home Secretary, Suella Braverman, gave a speech in which she tried to make the argument that multiculturalism had failed, and as a result, Britain was not only weaker, but putting its very security at risk. Braverman's husband is Jewish. She's the daughter of parents who immigrated to the UK in the 1960s from Kenya and Mauritius, and today she holds one of the top jobs in the British government. She was appointed to that job by Rishi Sunak, a Prime Minister whose parents were of Indian descent and who immigrated to Britain from East Africa in the 1960s. That children of immigrants can attain such lofty positions of authority in the country is surely a huge repudiation of the idea that multiculturalism has failed. Don't get me wrong, it's been far from plain sailing and to say that race isn't an issue in the UK is naive. But for a Home Secretary, particularly this one, to adopt the language and posturing of the far right, simply to garner support among sections of her own party and the broader electorate who'd welcome chants of White Lives Matter at football matches. Why wouldn't a teenager sat alone in a bedroom in Derbyshire not give it a go himself? <laughs>